I'm Betsy Shepard, and welcome to Profiles for WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers, and get to know the person behind the persona. Our guest today is Blaise Aweriarkas. Mr. Aweriarkas is an engineer, software designer, and imagery expert at Google. In 2003, Blaze founded the successful tech startup Sea Dragon, which developed mapping visualization software that was acquired by Microsoft. In 2011, Blaze was named Distinguished Engineer at Microsoft, where he oversaw the development of Bing Maps and Bing Mobile and the 3D photo mapping application Photosynth. MIT Technology Review recently named Blaze one of the top 35 innovators in the world under the age of 35. Blaze, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much. I'm very honored, although no longer under 35. <laughs> well, we're still impressed with all of your accomplishments. Your academic background is actually in math and physics. Right. What led you to a career in computer design and development? Well, my math background is, is applied math, so it's not, it's not pure math. And, um, you know, I, I've been playing around with computers since I was really very, very young. I think I had my first one when I was uh, six years old, and I began hacking and playing with it and programming. And originally, I, I thought about computers really as, uh, as just a, a toy or a plaything. I was really convinced from a very young age that I wanted to be a theoretical physicist, because that was much more fundamental and much more serious. But um, at some point in, in college, I realized that this is where my passion was. And in fact, that a lot of my more mathematical pursuits and my, my interest in other fields could be pursued through the computer or using the computer. And that's what I've been doing ever since. Were you um, doing computer design alongside your schooling? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I never, I never took a course. I, I don't think I've ever taken a computer science course, but um, I've always used them, right, in, in science and math. In 2007, you gave a TED Talk on software you developed called Photosynth that remains rated as one of TED's most jaw-dropping presentations. For our listeners who haven't seen your TED Talk, can you explain what Photosynth is and what makes the technology so impressive? Sure. So, yeah, Photosynth was really, really fun. And I, I should say right at the outset that it's, it's an exercise in computer vision. And computer vision is an, is an old field. It goes back... Um, it really parallels computer graphics in many ways. And it, its origins and the origins of computer graphics are um, int intertwined. Uh, so the idea is that computer graphics is about taking three-dimensional models and then rendering them from a virtual camera. So you take a, a three-dimensional model and you generate a two-dimensional image by proposing a camera position and lighting and so on and so forth. And computer vision is the opposite problem. It's when you have an image or images, and you want to go backwards and reconstruct the three-dimensional model. And um, as I said, it has a long academic history. And uh, the, the project that, that I saw uh, very shortly after joining Microsoft that really uh, inspired me was called Phototourism. And that was um, the graduate work of Noah Snavely. He was co-advised by uh, Rick Zaliski at Microsoft Research and Steve Seitz at University of Washington, and it was very beautiful. It, it involved things like uh, reconstruction of Notre Dame Cathedral from photos on Flickr, and I thought this was just the coolest thing I had ever seen. And uh, so, I, what I did is I, I took the entire Sea Dragon team and said, you know, we need to we need to make this we need to scale this up. We need to make this into a product, and that was how Photosynth was born. So the idea is that you you take a bunch of images that are shot in the same three-dimensional environment and 
you upload them to this photosynth site. And as you're uploading them, the three-dimensional reconstruction is taking place. And then all of those photos end up related to each other in 3D. What does that mean in terms of user experience? What would someone using it see? Well, you, you're looking at a photo, and it might be, for example, um, of the facade of a building, and you might have taken another photo of a close-up of maybe a, a figure in the archway or something. And as you, um, in the original version, when you move your mouse over that area of the photo, you'll see a sort of uh, glowing rectangle. Uh, showing where where that other photo was taken. And if you click on that, there's a continuous transition from the outer photo into the inner photo. So photos become connected to each other in space and form a sort of um, web of uh, of interconnected images. In a way, it's parallel to to the, um, the, the World Wide Web, the web of documents. Uh, but instead of hyperlinks, the links are based on the content inside the images and the transitions are continuous. So users would be able to navigate through a landscape in a different way than they would if it was, if they were actually there. That's right. I mean, on the one hand, you're looking at photos. On the other hand, you're navigating through a three-dimensional landscape in which those photos were taken. And it's, it's sort of uh, going back and forth between those experiences. During the talk, you said one of the aims of the software is to do away with limits on screen real estate. What did you mean by that? When I was talking about screen real estate, I was primarily talking about the other half of the project, about, about Sea Dragon itself. And the idea behind Sea Dragon, behind this, the startup that I, that I brought to Microsoft, is to work with images as, um, as multi-resolution or multi-scale objects. And what that means is that you never have to worry about the size of something, about how many pixels big it is. Uh, you know, w- when, we, when we deal with documents of this kind normally on computers, you think about how many pixels the image has, how many pixels the screen has, how long it takes to, to download or to open up, and those three things is all being interrelated. But they shouldn't be. Uh, you know, on, on every kind of, of, uh, of connection that we have today to the internet, you can render video. Through, through that connection, which is really sort of an upper bound on the amount of bandwidth you should ever need to do anything. And Sea Dragon was really all about realizing that upper bound for any kind of content whatsoever. So everything always opens immediately. Uh, if an image is very deep or rich, has a lot of pixels, then you can zoom in arbitrarily far and everything kind of works continuously and smoothly. That, that's, um, that's actually become more common in the years since. This was back in, in 2006. Nowadays, I think we're quite used to you know, pinching and zooming, zooming user interfaces and having everything sort of appear fluid and continuous all the time. So you know, in many ways, the things that we were advocating back then have, have become mainstream now. Let me back up just a little bit and ask you about Sea Dragon. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us what some of the accomplishments of, of that software is? Sure. So, I mean, that that was that was in a way what I was what I was just talking about. We 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 were able to do things like open up um, sets of thousands or tens of thousands of objects, whether they're documents or images or what have you, um, instantly, and then zoom in continuously, swoop in, and and until you're looking at tiny details in one of those. So that that ability to work in a very scalable way with very large collections of objects, including very dense or high-resolution ones, that really um, was an interesting fit with Photosynth, with this three-dimensional reconstruction stuff, because Photosynth was dealing naturally with clouds or sets of images, uh, some of which might have had very high resolution too. So we, by marrying both technologies, what we, what we did is we not only had these 
clouds of images that you could open very quickly and interact with very fluidly, but also had them uh, arrange themselves in 3D space and reconstruct the environments they were shot in. So it was an interesting marriage of two technologies. One thing that's really interesting about Photosynth is that it is much of the content is crowdsourced. Um, you mentioned people uploading photos from Flickr and using that within within Photosynth. Do you have any hopes for new directions that users can take the software in? Yeah, yeah, very much. So the the crowdsourcing, I think it captured a lot of people's imaginations when we first talked about this in in 2007. The idea that so many people have photographed so many places on Earth, right? It gave us the sense, well, now if we can take all of those images and reconstruct the three-dimensional environments where they were shot, maybe there's a sort of latent three-dimensional model of the whole world hiding in all of these photos that we've all got up on Facebook and Flickr and everywhere else. And, um, and it was a very exciting idea and very intellectually appealing. And, and so we, we did go and start mining those relationships and building graphs of such photos. Uh, we were doing this uh, at, at Microsoft. Google was doing it as well. Of course, now I'm at Google. And in fact, uh, Noah's other uh, advisor at, at the UW, Steve Seitz, actually went to, went to Google during this time as well. So both companies were, 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 I think, pursuing that vision. So the roadblock or the, or the challenge that we really ran into in doing that is that it turns out that people's shots that they take with their camera phones, whatever, I mean, they're, people are taking more photos than ever. But they are very um, stereotyped, I suppose, uh, you, or you could put it a little more negatively. They're very unimaginative in, in what they shoot and how they shoot it. So there are particular spots in front of Notre Dame Cathedral, in front of the Spanish Steps, uh, you know, in front of the Statue of Liberty, what, what have you, that are very photogenic, that lend themselves well to being framed in the way that a, that a camera frames things. And so there are zillions of such photos with a different person standing in front every time. But if you move a few steps to the left or you go around the corner or you think about it from another angle, suddenly the number of photos drops off absolutely dramatically. So if the goal is to reconstruct large areas, you find that you know even with the huge number of photos that you have online, it's the density is so... Um, is so uneven and, and it's so focused on these hotspots that, that large-scale three-dimensional reconstruction is pretty hard. However, uh, one of the really cool things about, uh, and again, both Microsoft and Google have been doing this. They, they've, both companies have been photographing large parts of the earth from the air and from the ground with things like Street View. And when you have a trellis like that of, of connected imagery uh, all over the world, then suddenly this crowdsourced stuff has a place to slot in. And now you can think about, about hotspots that have been heavily photographed in, in time or with different people in this um, network that's already fully connected of images that have been shot by uh, cameras from the air or street view cameras and so on. Do you think Photosynth will collaborate with other photo sharing sites other than Flickr? Well, so Photosynth is a, is a Microsoft project, and I'm, I'm speaking now as somebody who has just gone from, from Microsoft to, to Google, so I, I really can't say anything about, about Photosynth's future. I mean, whatever I, whatever I knew and I left may be out of date for all I know, and whatever I did know I can't talk about. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what the conceptualization process is like for coming up with new innovative software? What methods and tools do you use to 
help your ideas take shape? This is a process question about about creativity, I suppose. And um, I don't know, I'm torn in answering it because on, on the one hand, in a, in a way, I don't really believe in creativity. I think that a lot of those processes are, um, they look banal and they look incremental when you look at little bits of them. And a lot of, a lot of the creativity, I think, happens in conversation, uh, in interaction between people, or in taking things that are already there and combining them a little bit or uh, doing, doing some sort of cross product. There, there are occasional aha moments. The aha moments usually happen at a board with multiple people. It's hard to say who who made the invention or who did the thing. I, I actually think that um, in many ways the narrative of a creative person sort of dreaming stuff up is is really backwards. We we know that that creativity happens in a context of uh, many, many ideas that underlie the creative act and many minds operating on those pieces and generating new things. And it's it's sort of a diagonal process. It, it, it zigzags up. You know, and, and it's one of these things that when you look, if you, if you see this from the outside, you see something coming out of a creative process and you weren't privy to the entire, the entire process inside, then you might, you might look and, and, and it looks amazing. It's sort of like climbing. So this is a very incoherent metaphor, but it's, it's a little bit like climbing up a cliff face where you feel like you've just been scrabbling around and you know, inching your way up here and there. At some point, you look down and you're really, fu- you're really high up off the ground. Uh, except in this case, it's not a single person climbing up. It's a whole network of people climbing up. And um, so the front person presenting something, uh, you know, after a couple of years of work to an audience who hasn't witnessed that entire process, you know, this, this can look like this, this grand creative act. But when you look underneath, that's not how it is. I, I think that I think the romanticization of invention and of creativity is a conceit that it's hard for me to put exact dates on this, but it feels like an early something that happened late in the early modern and you know and, and really reached its peak kind of in the in the romantic period in the nineteenth century. And uh, maybe now it's already ebbing in the sense that we talk a lot now about collaboration and about um, teams and, and about creativity in the context of teams and so on. And I think that's how it's always been. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm giving a talk about Gutenberg and, and printing. And I think that that romance of, of invention and of the single inventor has very much been um, part of the narrative about Gutenberg as this kind of solitary great inventor. And, and that's actually a big part of what, of what that talk is all about uh, debunking. Not that he wasn't an extraordinary inventor and a, and a brilliant person, but it's messy, and there was a lot of stuff happening simultaneously. There were many inventors. There were a lot of complicated inventions, and what emerged out the other end didn't come out fully formed in some way. Right? There's a lot of process behind. Let me refine the question then. Mm. You answered it in terms of collaboration, and you have led a lot of design teams. Yes. In practical terms, what works and what doesn't in order to make innovative ideas happen in collaboration with other people. Okay. So you're looking for pragmatic. What do you do if you have a creative process and you want it to, and you want it to go well? Uh, bringing a diversity of points of view is helpful. We know that, um, and again, I, I really can't emphasize collaboration enough. We know, for example, that, that 
um, the rate of patenting scales as a function of the size of a city. Uh, and there, you know, there are many such findings, right, that the density of people has everything to do with, with its creative output. That's why New York is creative, why San Francisco is creative, right? It's, it's, uh, it's places of high density, first and foremost. So bringing the right people together is essential. Having a diversity of points of view is essential. I've often had collaborators and colleagues who have very different sorts of backgrounds. Uh, so we, when, when you bring people who, are, who, are, who come from art school, for example, together with people who are much more mathematical, together with people who are much more product-oriented and people who are much more engineering-oriented, then um, if they're all sufficiently open and sufficiently flexible and sufficiently bubbly, then a lot of magic can happen uh, in, when, you, when you just put those people in a room together with a mission. And I suppose the mission point is also important. I think you know, the case has been made many times that there is no such thing as intelligence without emotion. Uh, to guide it. This is Antonio Damasio's point about intelligence uh, in, in Descartes' error. And I think that he's right, and I think that that's equally right about a creative process. Uh, and I, by emotion, I don't just mean something... Um, I, I don't mean that just in the sort of fuzzy and touchy-feely sense. I mean in the sense of having a goal, a, a motivation, a why. If there isn't a why then it's difficult to make progress forward. That's why I think uh, brainstorming sessions are usually such rubbish. You know, because when you get people around and you say, you know, generate ideas, be creative. Uh, you know, everybody sits around, well, what, what the hell does that mean? Be creative about what? What are we here to do? And, you know, people asking that question are not being uncreative. They're, they're, they're just failing to find the emotional engine that propels the conversation forward. If there's a point, if there's a purpose, if there's a why, then um, that's the engine that, that drives the problem solving, which ultimately leads to creative solutions. You're listening to Profiles. I'm your host, Betsy Shepard. Our guest today is software architect Blaise Awerriarkis. Do you have an overarching goal, a why that you take to the table every day when you're doing your work? That's a really hard question. These days... I guess I'm, I'm asking myself that question quite a lot because – so my, my wife is a computational neuroscientist and I'm now working on machine intelligence. And so in a way, we're, we're, we're working on, on a similar kind of problem on, on what it is that makes, that makes for thinking, makes for intelligence and so on, but from very different angles. She's doing it from the point of view of trying to understand how this happens in nature, in our own brains. And I'm trying to think about – how we do this artificially with technology. And, um, you know, and then if you ask the question, why, then um, I'm not sure that there's a very satisfying answer other than that this feels like, um, it feels like a, like a way forward. Um, but what, is, what does it mean, a way forward? I guess, um, you know, we're, we're always trying to understand and we're always trying to make. And we're always trying to push boundaries and push limits and a lot of that really boils down to what life is all about. Life expands to fill niches. Life is creative and adapting to environments and, um, and problem solving to do so. You know, I, I think that it's, it's very sad that the U.S. has stopped pushing space exploration as, as, a, as a national exercise since the early 70s. 
you know, the, the decline of the space program since then has, has been a, a really kind of a, um, a very sad thing to see. Uh, and what it made clear is that the why of that exercise for the U.S. perhaps was the Cold War. Uh, and that's a pity because there's, you know, there's a, there's a much more fundamental why, which is just let's explore, let's do, let's get out there. But you know, maybe in the end, these things are always driven by by um, by less abstract needs and less less abstract desires. I mean, when uh, when the great European explorers went across the sea, it was for a particular reason. Maybe when the Austronesian explorers. Uh, you know, took to their logs and went, you know, went out to sea and found islands. It was also for very particular reasons because they were being hunted down or they had run out of land or, or, or there was some crisis. And so, I don't know, to bring this back to your original question, you know, is, is there a crisis for me? I, I don't know. Uh, yeah, there's a restlessness. There probably is some sort of inner crisis that, that drives it, but um, that might take a shrink to really winkle out. What are some of the challenges you face in transforming your ideas, things that you have thought about, maybe wrestled with into consumer applications that are usually user-friendly for people that may not know anything about the technology that you're introducing? Well, some of our projects really have been, have been science fair projects. I think that Photosynth, the original Photosynth in 2008, for example, was a science fair project and um, was not a success from the point of view of, of, a, of a product. And it's, it's interesting and it captured a lot of people's imaginations and a lot of people tried it once or twice. It, didn't, it wasn't a product that, that brought a lot of people back. It wasn't a Facebook or a Twitter. <laughs> and um, that's because it, there wasn't any particular human need that it, that it satisfied. It was really more of an experiment. So tapping into basic human needs and wants and desires and working working the product end that way while simultaneously thinking about what we can do with technology that allows some of those needs to be met in new ways that haven't been met before. Those are, those are the two ends. And, and I think that when you have a successful product, you manage to make those two things meet. There are plenty of products that are not, uh, that are not pushing things technologically, for example. Um, I, Instagram comes to mind. I mean, uh, you know, there, there's, there's nothing... Instagram just sold for an unbelievable amount of money not not so long ago, and um, you know, and kudos to them, and they made it. They made a wonderful product. It's not a technologically interesting product. There's there's no um, there's no magical algorithm. There's no uh, you know big new revolution in computer vision or anything else right that went into it. It just was something useful. So there are plenty of just useful things. The ones that I'm interested in are are both useful and have this new thing. And, and um, those are maybe a little bit rarer, but, but they're, I think they're, they're very satisfying when you, can, when you can find them. Steve Jobs said that computer science is not just a science. It's a liberal art. What do you think about that statement? I agree with him that computer science is not a science. In fact, I would say it's not a science at all. Um, I mean, there, there are discrete mathematicians in a lot of computer science departments at universities you know, who work on things like complexity theory and, and so on. Those really are very mathematical fields. But the huge majority of people who call themselves computer scientists are, in fact, engineers. Uh, they're, they're, not, they're not scientists. Scientists are trying to learn things about nature, and engineers are trying to make stuff. And most of, most of computer science is about making stuff. 
So in that sense, yeah, I, when you're making stuff, you're not guided by by a curiosity about nature. You're guided by by a desire to do something specific or to fulfill a need or to solve a problem. And there's always an aesthetic dimension to those things. So in that sense, it's very much a liberal art. If you're trying to make something that's appealing, that's useful, that fits into human life, then you're very much in the domain of people, not in the domain of technology. In addition to your work designing software, you've developed computational tools that can be broadly applied to other fields of inquiry, including historical research, which you mentioned earlier. Can you tell us a little bit about your study of Johann Gutenberg and early print technology? Sure. So this work began at Princeton, and my, my collaborator there was Paul Needham, who, who is the librarian of the Scheide Library, which is one of the most wonderful privately held uh, collections of early printing in, in the world, um, probably, probably the most extraordinary privately held collection of, of pre-1500, of, of uh, incunabula, as they're called, cradle books. And the reason that I got into this is because at the time I was, I was thinking a lot about my own, I, I mean, I hesitate to say career, because I don't think I have a career exactly, but about what I wanted to do. And it seemed to me that using all of the techniques and approaches that I had available to me as a computer person and an applied mathematician, surely there had to be a lot of different sorts of problems that were appealing and interesting to work on that weren't already being worked on by a zillion people by lots of computer scientists or lots of engineers or, uh, or lots of applied mathematicians. And uh, I had always had a lot of passion for the early modern, and that's not a place where, where a whole lot of these kinds of techniques get applied. I think that that's changing, by the way. There seems to be a lot more computational humanities nowadays. But in 1998 or 99, that was almost a non-existent field. So um, I started off... Uh, interested in problems like how could you diagnose the sequence of printings of of books um, that led up to the French Revolution? I was I was inspired by by the work of Charlton Hinman, who had sequenced the printings of the first folio of Shakespeare. All of those printings were done after Shakespeare's death, and. None of them say when they're printed exactly. So the, the order is, a, is, a, is kind of a jigsaw puzzle that you have to figure out from the physical artifacts themselves. And the text keeps changing. So you want to know what's the earliest copy or what's the definitive copy. And it turns out the only way to do that is by looking at the types themselves and at how they've been dented and damaged. Uh, and you know, if you do that, then you can sort of figure out from these, from these kinds of clues how, how it worked. So um, Hinman did this with a photocopier and uh, 10 or 15 years of work. And I thought, you know, these are the perfect kinds of problems to attack with, with computer algorithms. I mean, we have high-resolution imaging now. We can, we can do this. It was really very lucky that I ended up working with Paul on this because Paul's interest was in these very, very earliest printed books in Gutenberg's printing. So I always thought that would be a sort of a... Um, a, a toy problem or an exercise to develop the techniques, and then we'd move on to, to other things that maybe had more historical questions about them. I didn't understand at the beginning that there would be so many fundamental historical questions about Gutenberg's work itself. So what ended up happening is that you know I started to apply the techniques to Gutenberg's printing, and 
more and more questions and puzzles kept on cropping up and it felt sort of like downshifting, you know, so, oh, wait, you know, the, the technique seems to work, but we're finding things that don't make sense. Let's shift down a gear and see if we can get at something more fundamental about what's going on here. And we kept downshifting and downshifting until we ended up really um, questioning the whole nature of what printing was for for Gutenberg and what that, what that invention had been uh, around 1450. A lot of our historical narratives are based around a one leader, you know, or an inventor, like you mentioned earlier. Have you gotten any flack for perhaps challenging the idea that Johann Gutenberg was the single inventor of the movable printing press? Well, I think that Gutenberg, without question, is one of the greatest inventors of the past thousand years. And, you know, so I, I would never question his importance as a historical figure or his inventiveness. In fact, many of the things that, that, that we found and some of the things that, that Paul had, had found even before our collaboration suggest that he, he was inventing technologies left and right uh, throughout his entire career. Uh, you know, so a very fecund mind. But, um, you know, we, we're always looking for a simple narrative. So, you know, and, and so the simple narrative is Gutenberg invented printing. Well, we know Gutenberg didn't invent printing because there were Chinese printers working centuries earlier. Uh, there, were, there, were, there was woodblock printing much earlier. Then you ask, well, what about movable type? You know, so Pi Sheng was doing movable type with Chinese characters much, much earlier, and so on. So when you really start to try to pin down, you know, what is the invention? What's the thing that Gutenberg did that nobody had done before? What everybody sort of um, had fixated on the standard model, if you like, the standard narrative, is that what he had invented was the punch and matrix system uh, of casting movable type. Not the setting up of movable type, but the manufacture of the movable type itself. And, you know, it's, it's a good story because that, that would effectively have been the first industrial mass production process in which you have, a, you have a mold and a cast and you cast many of these identical pieces, identical lowercase a's or what have you, and they're all interchangeable and that's, that's the trick. And, um, you know, it's a very Henry Ford kind of idea. But, you know, it, it turns out that when you look at all the lowercase a's in, in um, one of Gutenberg's printed surviving documents, they're all different. So the the idea that this is a, a font in the conventional sense actually starts to break down. It's not really a font. They're all distinct. And we have a bunch of theories about how, how that came to be and what, what underlies that idea. It's so, you know, it's a subtle it's a subtle story and it involves really looking in detail at the data and, and, and saying how could this have been done? What are the inventions? Who were the other printers who were who were active at the time? Who invented what? What was the interchange of ideas? None of which none of which is is known from records because this was all happening in secret in guilds. So you know the press the press um, doesn't like sophisticated narratives with a lot of twists and turns. Um, there was a really good piece in the Guardian talking about our work, I think, in two thousand or two thousand one that that did it justice and 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 did go into a lot of these details. And then there was a piece in the New York Times that was much more, you know, classically sort of journalistic. You know, I, I, Gutenberg of fraud. It didn't exactly say Gutenberg of fraud, but it was that, that sort of that sort of stuff. And and it was a really simplifying narrative and one that turned him into a villain. And so on. and it was really upsetting to read because that wasn't that wasn't what we were saying at all, of course. And this was all. We, we, I mean, if anything, I'm coming out of this whole process with much more respect for Gutenberg than than I went in with. Um, so 
yeah, media narratives frustrating the way they always pin things on on a simple narrative, on a single inventor, on a, on a single process. It's, it's not how it works at all. But not how it works now, not how it worked in the 15th century either. You've also used computational methods to predict demographic trends. And you have forecasted that women will become economically dominant within the next few years. Tell us about your research and what led you to that conclusion. Well, uh, yeah, this is a really interesting one. So um, it, it started off um, as, a, as a, an exercise at, at Microsoft in just thinking about, about demographics and about, about money generally. And the data are all there. So, you know, most of the data f- that that, um, that we used for doing this are available online at the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and, you know, it's there for anybody to download. There isn't a whole lot of math involved. Uh, you you know, you can really just look at these, at these trends and curves and see that women have been, of course, I mean, everybody knows that women have been an underclass and oppressed for, you know, Opinions vary. Is it millions of years? Is it ten thousand years? Is it since the dawn of agriculture? Who knows? But um, you know, they've absolutely been second-class citizens. You can see that from from things like the the average proportion of a man's income that a woman makes uh, in full-time employment in the U.S. But if you break it down further and you look at those data over ages of women and over year, then you find that. Uh, first of all, as the years progress, the fraction of men's income that women are making goes up. So if you're, uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember now exact numbers, but if you're a 55-year-old woman in, 19, in the 1970s, then you're making maybe only a little over half of what a man is making full-time employed in his 50s. But as you go forward to present day, it's more like 75%. Okay, still not great, but you know, a big difference between 50s and 70s. If you then look at younger women, then they also are making more as a proportion of, of what men are making. So you go forward in time or you look at younger women, it goes up either way. And we're at a very, very interesting point right now where the, um, the peak of that curve, which is uh, women right after college graduation, uh, so ages 22 to 35, let's say, are, um, are about to break through the... Um, the 95% line, and it just looks like a, a linear slope going right up through 95%. And uh, it looks, if that continues, that'll go through 100% um, sometime in the next few years. And, uh, and then, of course, as those women, as that cohort of women ages and, 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 and time passes, it looks like that's going to be the case for everybody uh, over college age. And there are, plenty of, there are plenty of other pieces of lines of evidence that converge in that same thinking uh, college graduation rates vastly higher for women than for men uh, for every kind of degree now. That's also going to spread through the population as, as, as it ages and as, as more women come through. Um, you know, and people have begun to notice, right? There's, there's a lot of this sort of, uh, you know, our boys are in trouble or uh, why, aren't, why aren't boys doing as well in school? As, as, you know, it's a lot of fear, right? <laughs> Especially on the part of men about what this all means. Uh, but the data, the data are there. They're, they're very clear. You're listening to Profiles, and I'm your host, Betsy Shepard. Our guest today is software architect Blaise Aweriarkis. Aweriarkis spoke on the economic future of women in the Indiana University Student Union this past February. We're going to listen to a bit of that lecture now. When we come back, 
I will be speaking with Blaze about the economic future of women and will examine the roles of women in the tech industry. Given that we know that, um, that people with college educations really are the economic engine of the country. And if we look at graduating classes, we get a, we get a peek into the future of this as well. Because you know now you can um, now you're not looking at just the population, but at, at sort of the um, at the entry uh, at, at, at how people are, are entering the population. So this is graduation rates uh, from graduating classes uh, all over the U.S. Uh, with different types of degrees, and uh, what we're looking at is the percentage of graduates who are female. So at 50 percent, it's gender balanced, and of course, what you'll see is that all of these numbers have crossed well north of 50 percent meaning that there are more female graduates of every kind uh, now than there are male graduates. And uh, it crosses over first in the early degrees. So you first see uh, you know, bachelor's or associate, I don't actually know what an associate degree is, but it's some kind of undergraduate thing, I think. Um, so bachelor's and associate, master's comes a little bit later, uh, then the you know, doctorates, you know, PhDs and JDs and things like this come last. Right, so, so women are later to dominate the higher degrees, but they dominate in all of them eventually. And now we're above 50% with all of these. So that's interesting. And even if you assume that these things asymptote, uh, you know, at some reasonable level like 60%, that gives us quite a long way of linear increase in, in, um, in fraction of, of, uh, of women in these populations into the future. All right, and now, um, now I'm gonna show you the, what I think is probably the most important and interesting piece of data here. So this is a, this is a busy and ugly plot. I'll, I'll show it to you in a, in a nicer form in just a moment. But I wanted, to, I wanted to show you the raw data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics as well as my fit uh, before we start slicing through it. All right, so the, the circles are the raw data and the straight lines or the, the, the curves are, are my uh, numerical fit to these data. What we're looking at is how much full-time employed women are making as a percentage of what full-time employed men are making from 1979 to 2012 and broken down by age. All right, so the, the green line is ages 20 to 24, the yellow line is ages 55 to 64, and so on. All right, so that's the, the raw data and my fits. I'm just showing it to you to, to reassure you that my fits are pretty good relative to the data. They're a little messy for the oldest group for, uh, actually it's very hard to read that one, but that, that, uh, that dotted one is 65 plus. That one is a little bit weird, but the other ones are, are very good fits to the data. All right, and now we're gonna step through it in, an, in, a, in a more interesting way. This is that two-dimensional fit for 50-year-old women. All right, so um, what it's showing you is a very clean and simple story. If you are a 50-year-old woman in 1979, you're making 56% of what a man is making uh, 50 years old in 1979. Now, if you're a 50-year-old woman in 2012 with full-time employment, then you're making more than 75% of what a 50-year-old man is making in 2012. Now we can start to step through uh, younger and younger ages, and you'll see what happens. It looks pretty good, right? So you look at younger and younger women, they, just, they make more and more of a percent of, of what men are making. Um, and uh, you'll notice that at 22, in 2012, they're at 95%, and they're, they're, it looks, they look, they're looking unstoppable. Uh, now, something disturbing happens as we go younger than 22 years old, which is that. So you see this flattening, or this saturation. So 
is there a 90% wage ceiling? Um, well, no, I don't think so. Because what, what this, of course, neglects is that the ages 16 to 21 are not just any old ages. Those are the years when, if you're full-time employed, that means that you probably haven't gone to college. And remember that college is the huge determinant of how much money people are making later in life. So, um, you know, in many ways, the fractions of, uh, you know, full-time wage employment between ages 16, which is the youngest that the BLS keeps the data for, and 21 or 22 are artifactual because these are from people who haven't gone to college and then you have to start looking into, well, what are the full-time jobs for people in those age ranges? And it, it turns out that if you're a man, then predominantly those job categories are things like construction work. And if you're a woman, then predominantly those job categories are things like nannying. And there's a huge differential between how much money those pay early Although, on the other hand, they both also don't have much of a future in terms of, you know, when you look at how, how those career progressions go for older people. Um, and these are exactly the people who are ending up at the bottom of the distribution anyway, if they don't end up going back to college. So the relevant data are not 16 to 21, but the post-college data from 22 onward. And we're actually at a really interesting moment in history right now because we're just past the right-hand side of this plot. And this is kind of like the, the cliffhanger. What happens next, right? Does, does, it, does it suddenly crap out at 95%? Does it keep going to 100%? Or does it maybe go beyond 100%? I don't know. Um, but it's, it is actually the moment when we're gonna find this out, right? So this is a, a sort of real-time social experiment that we are observing right now. And, um, you know, that, that 25 to 34 category, I've just, again, drawn a, you know, drawn a very crude straight line through the data points. Uh, if that continues, and I don't really see any reason why it wouldn't, then it looks poised to blow through 100% around 2020, which is interesting. I don't know when it stops. I don't know what the saturation effect is, but we're, we're at the moment of truth right now. Now, um, even if, even if we take a very conservative assumption and we suppose that 90% is actually the asymptote, 90%. So if we assume that from here on out, women are saturated in their income relative to men, it's actually still the case that women dominate economically because, you know, I mean, this is, this is baby math. It's not, it's, it's a little bit, um, you know, it neglects some things, but 0.9 times 0.6 over 0.4 is 135%, right? So this is assuming that they're making 0.9 of what men are making. But remember that 60% of college graduates are gonna be women, uh, right, when those, when those graduation rate numbers settle out. And that means that if we're concerned with people with college educations, they're gonna be dominating economically anyway, because there'll be many more of them, um, right? 0.6 over 0.4 more of them, three halves of them uh, more, than, more than men, even if they're only making 90%. But if they're making 100% of what men are making, then they control 150% of the economy when all of that uh, gets itself sorted out. And, um, and by the way, I don't know whether 100% is, is, you know, is the right saturation number either. For, I mean, for all these curves show, it might be higher than 100%. And um, for reasons that will become clear in the second half of the talk, that actually wouldn't surprise me at all. And if they go over one, over 1.0, then 
you know, the, 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 they dominate even more of the economy than, than uh, 150%. So it's, you know, I, I, hope, I hope that you're all um, sort of taking this in because I, I found this really very surprising when I looked at it. I think that this represents an inversion of 10,000 years of history, at least, of economic dominance of men over women. Uh, you know, we, we talk about, you know, theory issues and gender studies and all this kind of stuff all the time. But, you know, at the bottom, I think that economics are just incredibly fundamental in the empowerment of a person. Um, you know, if you don't have the money to do something, you can't. If you rely on other, on someone else to, to get something for you, do something for you, transport you somewhere, then you're not empowered. It doesn't really matter what your beliefs are or what the societal mores are or whatever. And what this is telling us is that women are going to have the money um, starting in the 2020s. And that has never been the case before uh, since, um, as far as I know, uh, since we have had economies. You're listening to Profiles. I'm your host, Betsy Shepard. Our guest today is software architect Blaise Awerriarkis. Women are still a huge minority in the technology sector. Yes. A recent study found that Women make up just 6% of chief executives at the top 100 tech companies. Based on personal experience or computational analysis, do you think the demographics of Silicon Valley will see any big changes in the near future? That's a really good question, and I really hope so. You know, the kinds of curves and trends that I'm talking about from the Bureau of Labor Statistics are, of course, averages over all sectors and, you know, everywhere. And they, they don't look at... So it, it doesn't look at individual sectors or individual disciplines and fields. I, I mean, personally, I have a lot of passion about girls and women in STEM and science, technology, engineering, and math, and what's been going wrong uh, with that in in the last few years, and why we don't see increases in those proportions. Uh, I, I think that I think that um, there's very good data showing that uh, women are just as good at those fields as men. Uh, Claude Steele has done some very good work. In a, in a, he, he published a book called uh, Whistling Vivaldi a few years ago that, that talks about stereotype threat and some of the some of the things that that happen in uh, in high performance and in high stakes situations that that cause a lot of the internalized biases that we have to show up in performance. And my suspicion is that that's that's uh, the cause of a lot of that of a lot of those things that we see. And it's upsetting. It's upsetting that we don't see more more women executives and more women in tech. Uh, and that's something that I would like to see Microsoft and Google and other tech companies take much more. Much I, I, Many of them are trying to take very proactive steps, but it's been slow going. Having said that, though, you know, I, I think that those issues <laughs> in some fundamental way are near-term issues. Uh, I think that in the long term, uh, women are actually poised to dominate in this field, too. And like with a lot of things, uh, you know, it begins earlier, it begins more junior in the hierarchy, it begins younger, and it works its way up through seniority and uh, through differing levels, right? It, it, this, is, this is something that, that's, that's the way it always works. So uh, in a way, I think we're going to see shifts toward many more female CEOs and, and, and so on happen as the last chapter in, in, a, in a long story. Uh, and by the by the time we start to see CEOs and, and, and executives tip in favor of women, we will already be in, in a situation of, of women dominating economically uh, in the average. You recently left Microsoft, where you worked on Bing Maps and Bing Mobile, among other things. 
And you are now working at Google. Can you tell us about any current or upcoming projects that you're excited about? Well, it's I've only been at Google. I've only been working at Google for five weeks or so. <laughs> so this is still very, very early days, and I can't. It's like I can't really talk at all about specific things that that my new team is doing or or what have you because we haven't really figured it out ourselves. But um, I was brought to Google to work on machine intelligence. And that's um, that was a big part of the draw. I feel like this is one of those frontiers, one of those one of those um, places where we really have uh, a tremendous amount of activity right now. It's one of the big mysteries. I mean, what are the frontiers? There is there is um, biology and the creation of life of artificial life. There is space and the exploration of the solar system. Uh, there is the brain and figuring out intelligence and how that works, uh, both the science and the technology of it. Um, you know, those are the, those are the big ones. Uh, I guess there's nanotechnology and there are a couple of other things, but it's a, it's a short list. So the brain is, is, um, is one that seems eminently tractable. I mean, we, we all have one, you know, and it's not that big and not that small. It's, you know, it fits inside your head. It's, it's a very finite thing. Um, it seems like there's a lot of experiment and a lot of measurement that, that can be done uh, with, with technologies that are already there. Progress feels like it's accelerating uh, sort of exponentially right now, uh, both at the learning and at the making. There, are, there have been a series of, of breakthroughs in a field called deep learning uh, since 2006. Uh, Hinton, uh, Jeffrey Hinton really uh, led a lot of this, um, and he's now at, he's now at, at Google. Uh, these are these are neural net technologies that uh, look at images or at sounds and are able to um, to reconstruct what was said or what's in the picture or what have you uh, using a using um, what amounts to neurons uh, neural networks that kind of look and feel very much like the like what what is what is happening in our own uh, primary sensory cortex and you know this is. This is spooky stuff. Like this is this is really this feels like it's the it's the the wave front of something huge that um, that we are going to see hit uh, in the next I don't know decade. Uh, so I, I you know it's hard to think of a more exciting problem to be working on right now or, or a more exciting place to be to be doing it because you know, Google has really been investing very very heavily in this area. I hate to confuse this with um, sci-fi fantasy, but. I mean, would you say that it's kind of like brain reading technology or what you just mentioned? Yeah, I, so I, I, I don't I don't think that it's problematic to confuse things with sci-fi um, because, I mean, sci-fi is is in a way our our wish fulfillment or our thinking about what what could be. And you know, good sci-fi is is all about being thoughtful about what what the, what the future could bring and what we could do, uh, what the dangers are or what the utopias are. And so, yeah, I, I think that I think that um, mind reading is is entirely possible. There have been some some fascinating experiments that that I think it's Yang Dan has shown things like you know recording from visual cortices and being able to reconstruct um, movies uh, from uh, or maybe it's from LGN. I'm not remembering now the exact. There have been a series of experiments now which you're, you're able to essentially. Play back, you know, a movie of what the eyes are seeing in in a, an awakened, behaving brain. So, yeah, I, I don't think mind reading is is out of the question at all. Um, I mean, 
when you talk to the scientists working on these things, they, they'll all be very, very eager to put all the caveats on, oh, you know, it's very, very early days for this. It's still very, very crude. We, you know, there are many things we can't do. And that's all true. On the other hand, when you look at where we are now compared to where we were 10 years ago or 20 years ago, it just feels like tremendous progress is being made. 50 years ago, Isak Asimov, the sci-fi writer, predicted what the year 2014 would look like with a startling, startling amount of accuracy. I'm wondering if you have any hopes for what the world will look like 50 years from now. 50. Yes, yeah, so Asimov had it, had it easy because because 50 years ain't what it used to be. <laughs> There's like 50 years is, is, is a lot more time now than it was when Asimov made this prediction. Asimov was also brilliant. And he was, he was, I think, one of the best futurists who has ever lived. Um, so I don't pretend to have his skill at that. And I think for any of us to predict what 50 years from now will look like today would be more like Asimov predicting what 100 years from now would have been like 50 years ago. So that's really hard. But I, I guess, um, you know, if I, if I were to think about the long view... I've just read a book recently that I think has a, a very um, good picture in many, many ways of the future. Uh, it's a little bit of a mix of timescales, but uh, the book is 2312 by Kim Stanley Robinson, uh, another science fiction writer. Uh, it's a very good book, and um, you know he's really trying to take a very long view. 2312 is a is, is long time from now. I think the errors that it makes are uh, really ones of... Um, you know, there's some things, especially in computer science and in, in the science of, of, of machine intelligence, that I think he's putting way too far out. And I think a lot of that comes much sooner. Whereas um, the, the space exploration stuff that he envisions, you know, probably takes longer. But then again, this may, be, this may be just my own biases based on what I know better and what I know less well. Um, so it's, it's a good, I think he's, a, he's a, a, as good a candidate for a, an Isaac Asimov uh, as we have today, you know, his basic theses have to do well. There, there are a number of them, but the machine intelligence one is good. Uh, basically, we're no longer alone. We have we have machine intelligences as well as human ones, and there there is a sophisticated relationship between machine intelligences and human ones. We have filled up the solar system. We've inhabited every possible place in it. That, that can be terraformed or that can be hollowed out if it's an asteroid and spun up or what have you. And interestingly, in that environment, Earth has turned into something like what Africa is for the developed world. Uh, it's the origin and uh, the place that we all came from, also full of problems um, and in many ways underdeveloped, underactualized relative to the rest. Uh, which seems to be a bit of a pattern with with humans. You know, we we we're a wave front that, in a way, burns as as it expands. I mean, this is the the curse of of being human, right? That we sort of we burn where we've been, and um, it's unclear what happens when we when we reach the limits of our of our possibility to expand and to grow into new niches. That's why we have the environmental crisis now. I have one more bonus question. Is there anything about you that people are surprised to find out? I, I have no idea. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how to answer. Um, I'm sorry. I, you know, 
are you surprised by anything? Or is there anything that I can... <laughs> well, I did hear a lot more literary references than I expected to in <laughs> talking to you. Well, is there anything that we left out in this conversation that you would like to talk about? I, I feel like we've covered a lot of a lot of ground. I don't know how how long the, the show is going to be or how much you plan to put on the air, but um, I feel like this is... This has been a pretty, pretty thorough covering of the things that that I've been up to in, in the past ten years. Certainly, yeah. All right, I've been speaking today with Blaze Aweriarkis. Thank you so much for being with us. This is Betsy Shepard for Profiles, and thanks for listening. Betsy, thanks so much. The program you just heard was recorded in February of 2014. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.